While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. From an that pretty gal to Georgia. This is Moving Through Georgia, Episode 9, and I'm releasing this on the 4th of July. I know it's not Memorial Day and it's not Veterans Day, but our podcast today is about soldiers who fought for our country. If you're looking for something more traditional about the 4th of July, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast feed. I just released an episode about the three Georgians who signed the Declaration of Independence and a short one about some stories about the Revolution. So this is episode 9, Soldier Stories. Our first soldier is Garland Lane, who joined the Revolutionary Army from his settlement in Wofford's settlement in Banks County. We talked about Wofford's settlement in some detail in the first episode of this podcast. To start, there are some serious challenges to conducting research in the internet age. For example, just googling Garland Lane brings up 52.8 million results just about all of which are descriptions of property on a road somewhere called Garland Lane. And just about every city in America has one. However, he was a real person. Garland's name does show up on several lists of residents of Wofford's settlement. In 1776, General George Washington began assembling those soldiers who would serve as his personal guard. His order specifically states that men should be chosen from all the current colonies and that His Excellency depends upon the colonels for good men, such as they can recommend for their sobriety, honesty, and good behavior. He wishes them to be from 5 feet 8 inches high to 5 feet 10 inches, handsomely and well made, and as there is nothing in his eyes more desirable than cleanliness in a soldier, He desires that particular attention may be made in the choice of such men as are neat and spruce. The number of men in this unit varied, peaking at 240 but being reduced to 180, then 64 at the close of the war. The guard had its own unique uniforms and a regimental flag and took part in those battles where Washington was present. Although there isn't much information regarding Garland Lane's experience in the Revolution, including his enlistment date or where he served before joining Washington's Guard, a DAR roster of Revolutionary War soldiers from Georgia lists Lane as being in Washington's lifeguard during Yorktown at 1781. His gravestone in Baldwin states that he was Washington's Guard and was present at Yorktown as well. What do we know about him? Well, we do know he was a patriot. He was a soldier. He was between 5'8 and 5'10 and most likely was neat and spruce. Our next soldier is General Lafayette McLaws. He was born in Augusta and attended Richmond Academy. He was classmates with James Longstreet. McLaws and Longstreet graduated West Point in 1842. As the Civil War broke out, McLaws resigned his commission as a captain in the United States Army and entered the Confederate Army as a major and was soon a colonel commanding an infantry regiment. He fought in Maryland and at Chancellorsville, and he and Longstreet fought together at Gettysburg, where you can find his name on a lot of the markers there. After Gettysburg, the two moved to Tennessee, where they both fought at Chattanooga. 
they were then sent to try and force out Union troops that were occupying Knoxville. The Confederates found Union defenses already in place, so they surrounded the city and prepared for a siege. After two weeks of containing the Union troops, Longstreet ordered McLaws and his men to take a fort called Fort Sanders, but McLaws' men were unable to breach the earthworks surrounding the fort and they were turned back after suffering heavy casualties. This wasn't taken well. Longstreet actually began court-martial proceedings against McLaws after this. He was charged with two counts of neglect of duty. But he wasn't convicted on those counts, he was convicted on a smaller count of failing in the details of his attack to make arrangements essential to his success. Both the verdict and the sentence were later overturned, but rather than return to duty in Longstreet's vicinity, McLaws was sent to defend Savannah. Longstreet would later retire and take a position as a postmaster in Gainesville, Georgia, dying there in 1904. He's buried in the Alta Vista Cemetery right there in the middle of Gainesville. McLaws is buried in Savannah. And the reason I chose to tell a story about McLaws rather than Longstreet is a letter he wrote to his wife in 1863 as he was traveling through Habersham County. He said, I have written to you advising the purchase of a place in Sparta or elsewhere as you think best. Habersham County is said to be a very beautiful county and will be very populous and prosperous. A visit to that section would no doubt be a great desideratum. Land is cheap and everything to eat is more seasonable. When we have achieved our independence, or even if we do not, there is no doubt but that section of the state will advance more rapidly in wealth and population than any other. And at the time, Habersham County was considerably larger, but it is still a great desideratum to uh, look into land in Habersham County. He probably would have liked it here, but he left the war with some pretty hard feelings against Longstreet. And with him in Habersham County and Longstreet in Gainesville, they probably would have been a little too close for comfort. Our last soldier is a local boy who went to war in World War II from Banks County. His name is Robert Marshburn, and I first came across his name in a large and fairly heavy work entitled The History of Banks County, Georgia. The public library has a copy, and so do most of the schools. I was looking through a section of biographical sketches and came across Marshburn's entry. He was born in 1897, graduated from UGA in 1916, and married in 1918. According to the history, he served in the infantry during World War I, then was a colonel and chief of the supply division in World War II. Returning home, he opened some businesses and served as an elder in his church. He was also elected to the state senate and served from 1959 to 1960. He was a credit to his community and died in 1965. Part of his entry in this book became one of the main reasons I began this podcast. Reading through it, Marshburn's credits include the Bronze Star, the Croix de Guerre, and the Order of the British Empire from his service in World War II. I was able to confirm that Mr. Marshburn did serve in the Quartermaster Corps, as he is specifically mentioned in two books describing the efforts of the Supply Division during the war. There are so many military records, and those that were filed before the computer era are being digitized slowly but surely, starting with the most recent record, 
There was also a fire in the 70s in which a lot of National Archive material involving World War II was lost forever. There are lists online of Bronze Star recipients, but they're not complete as the U.S. awarded over 300,000 Bronze Stars during and after the war. Records concerning the Croix de Guerre are a little harder to find. They're, of course, mostly in French. Again, thousands of these were awarded to Americans after the war, and as this was a foreign commendation, it was not always added to a soldier's service record. So people going through lists of service records to find Croix de Guerre recipients would not always find all of them. However, in something that I regard to be a real research coup, I was able to pay five pounds to the British National Archives and find Colonel Marshburn's recommendation for the OBE, the Order of the British Empire. The recommendation was posted on July 13, 1945, and the scanned record is here in the archives. The action for which he was commended reads as follows. Colonel Marshburn, for meritorious service in connection with military operations against an enemy of the British Empire, as Chief, Army Exchange Service, Communication Zone, European Theater of Operations, United States Army. His fine sense of business administration, his tact and diplomacy in business negotiations, and his constant liaison and cooperation with His Majesty's forces have greatly aided in Anglo-American understanding and enabled the swifter defeat of the common enemy. Colonel Marshburn made a significant contribution to winning the war. I mean, after all, without guns, without coats, without boots, nobody was going to do any fighting. And it was really cool finding a scan of that original handwritten form commending Colonel Marshburn for the decoration. If you have any stories you'd like to share on the podcast, you can send me an email at movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. Also consider giving us a positive rating and maybe a positive review that helps get the word out to everybody. And I do occasionally release other content that will come to you if you hit that subscribe button in your podcast feed. It's free, nobody's making money off of this, but every once in a while something interesting might pop up in your podcast app. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid that pretty gal to Georgia. That's all.